you're on the air. Don't say anything crazy. A bow and a curtsy to all the monarchies of the world, and a bow and a curtsy to all their loyal subjects as well. Everybody, <laughs> welcome to another edition of Bro Bears Talk, where we'll be addressing the current state of the British monarchy and the implications for monarchies of the future. Brother Bear, welcome. Thank you, Brother Bear. This sounds like a very topical topic, if I may say so, with the whole affair around Meghan and Harry being hot on the news agenda. Absolutely. I thought we should strike when the iron, um, the um, the regal iron, that is, <laughs> very hot. Um, the uh, situation we're seeing right now in the UK, um, some are calling it a bit of a watershed moment um, in terms of the international and domestic perceptions of the royals. Um, you know, stock markets have been uh, quite adversely affected, at least in the very short term, um, by... Meghan's criticisms uh, of of her treatment uh, by the royal family, um, and the general implications for people's faith in um, you know a, a system whereby you you pay through taxpayer receipts um, this this high and mighty family in a palace that they're, they're starting to dwindle, uh, particularly in Commonwealth com- countries. So let's unpack that, let's. brother Bear, and, and talk about. What the hell is going to happen? Fascinating, Brother Baron. You mentioned the stock market, something as complex and sophisticated as the stock market and modern, should I say, because as we know, the vast majority of trades these days are algo based. Do you think something as a mechanism that's that sophisticated and complex has actually been affected and you're seeing ripples of that off the back of this um, disgruntlement or are there other dynamics at play here? Uh, I think I think there is um I wouldn't say a, a a direct highly direct link but there there has been a talk in uh, the New York stock exchange exchange of the the Megan effect or the Markle sparkle wow. um as they call it um the, and these these are talking more about kind of the fashion industries uh from from apparel to to jewelry and bags and shoes and and obviously you know the um the market uh, share of those is is huge when it comes to the stock exchange as a whole. Yeah. Um, so there's certainly some fluctuations we've seen in luxury brands um, because of of the the words of of Megan. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that obviously has a ripple effect. Um, the the pair of them, um, Megan and Harry, have already had quite the effect on ethical and sustainable stocks and shares. Um, you know, particularly their, their fondness for cruelty free underwears caused a rise in in those kind of uh, you know vegan wares and products <laughs> yes indeed well that sort of commentary i suppose doesn't go unnoticed and um, you sound like a macroeconomist brother bear when you speak about even these maybe in the perceptions of a layman such as myself rather minor ripples on the pond but in fact you know have far-reaching effects of the banks of the other side yeah certainly and i i think i think that um Whenever there's a a wider um, skepticism or volatility in people's perceptions of an institution, and in this case, it's it's the uh, the highest arbiter of law in the land, the the crown in the UK. I think that's going to have a knock-on effect on currency and markets. Mm. Um, so, you know, th- these these kind of um, th- these these kind of words don't go unnoticed. Um, 
but I think you know my my knowledge of the the stock market effects is is fairly minimal. Um, but what I wanted to talk about with you, brother Bear, is the um, really the broader social effects um, of of life mm-hmm. in the UK and around the world. I'm I'm calling in from Canada, which you know we are, we have the Queen on our on our money over here. Um, rightly so, you know. Rightly so. So <laughs> I think <laughs> the the discussion should be: um, Is that still warranted? Do, does the royal family have a place? on uh, people's currency these days. Yes, I think it's still a lot more relevant than people would like to give them credit for. Um, And I think the reason is more than just, you know, tradition-based. I think the Queen still yields real power, and if she wanted to, right, could, in theory and technically, interfere with a lot of what Parliament passes and effectively block certain was right mm. if she really wanted to at least on paper now that's not something she'd do because it wouldn't be in the interest of the constitution and would compromise the understanding of where the monarchy sits within today's modern political landscape in the united kingdom however i think there is a, what can't be understated is the symbolic value and importance of the monarchy um because it's an mm. institution um a constitution that's been there for this long I think it holds real gravitas when it comes to UK politics. Um, mm. And we'll get into the monetary aspects later. And I, I do apologise for tangenting so hard on the stock market. But um, you put the bait no, out there go, and I had to ahead. bite. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that 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 is your uh, your bailiwick, your wheelhouse, Brother Bear, is the more more kind of micro-economist of, of us two, I think. I think um, go ahead and um, expound on those those areas, um, but but you're certainly right. The um, the monarchy is is perhaps understated, uh, particularly by the younger generations in her sphere of influence on on lawmaking. Um, you know, and I think I think her consistency as a head of state um, also has a uh, as Stephen Fry would argue a positive impact. Um, he calls it an unreasonable concept, or he calls him a preposterous, preposterous monarchy. Um, but he also argues that the U.S. might benefit from a similar idea to keep the politicians in place. Yes, um, I, th- I think this came off the back of uh, the election um, in 2016, which elected Donald, and um, this kind of led to him arguing that actually uh, a monarchical head of state. Um, reduces extremism on the left and the right that's one take on it i don't know what your thoughts are on that i think on the whole and on balance the monarchy is a force and a dynamic for stability on balance um Mm. it's a very interesting system that we've still got in place here in the uk and the fact we have a functioning monarchy that in theory could interfere on a number of levels and at the very highest levels of government in theory Mm. and i say in theory because that power is never exercised these days and it's understood that would be the case and will remain the case. Um, Mm. But it's a very interesting dynamic and I think one of the things that the Queen has is she spans far greater time spans than the term of any given Prime Minister, which I think is only Mm. healthy and only lends a stable hand to British government of which the Queen, I believe, is an integral part of, or the King, or whoever it may it is in that position. Mm. So I think someone you- sort of who has that 
100,000 foot view of the United Kingdom and everything it's been through over her substantial reign of what is it now? 70 years? It's getting there, isn't mm. it? Is, y- yeah. y- you know, I think that's invaluable in the very real sense of that word. As in, you cannot, it's not a tangible or a monetary or whatever value. You, you, you can't label that value that it's almost intangible in terms of the, I suppose, clarity of thought and understanding of the British context, historical mm. context, is, I mean, it's unparalleled. No other person on the planet has that appreciation, I think, of a country's past, present and future. Yeah, the the closest America ever had to a monarchy was probably the Kennedys. Um, and I, I think that a lot of them hold the Kennedys near and dear. And you, you'll see anyone who's spent some time in America will see airports and interstates and um, grand government buildings and streets, anything you can think of named after the Kennedys. Um, and I, I think that there is a warm, fuzzy feeling, an almost communitarian feeling um, that comes with that. And that's that's something very intangible that you can't really put a price on. Um, and although I have some some grave criticisms of the royal family, I would I would argue that that is that is one element of value that they deliver it's quite difficult to understand that out of the british con context um and i think that it's interesting how there's a kind of working class support for the royal family in the uk um i don't know if you've ever picked up on that but even the kind of labor voters of the north that were traditionally more socialist have a uh a belief in the efficacy of the royal family in certain in certain members of them do and i think that's that's something that's incredibly rare leo if you're not a royalist now i shall make you one by the end of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'd love to, i'd love to hear i'd love to be um critiqued on my anti and certain anti-royalist stances i have Yes, well, we we have frustratingly rational views of the world, and I think we're we're relatively balanced people, and we're we're pretty aligned on the libertarian standpoint, and we sort of take the best of the left and right from a political perspective. But this is an interesting uh, discourse we could sort of venture into, I suppose. Here, so yes, let me give you my two cents. Yeah. Um or two pence, two pence. Um, that was never a coin, was it? No, sixpence. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> six, <laughs> let me give you my sixpence. Let me yeah. give you my sixpence, here, boy. <laughs> um, Go right ahead. Yeah. So, so you did mention an interesting point, and I just want to pick up on, um, and isolate, which was the point that yes, the the interaction between government and the queen, potentially most famously apart from the uh, storming of Parliament with the scepter, which I don't fully understand <laughs> because I'm such a uh, political imbecile um, as to the significance <laughs> no of that and that. what it means and everything. But I'm sure there's, uh, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I've just never really bothered to dust off that book in my mind and look at it. But um, nonetheless, I think everyone understands that there is a regular meeting between the Prime Minister, whoever that he or she may be, and the Queen on a weekly basis, which is very interesting and is presented on a very regular basis in sort of, I suppose, common and uh, common culture, 
via mm. the show that is The Crown, which has been highly popular both in the UK and the US, as per my understanding. Mm. And I think that has a non-trivial impact on people's perception of what the monarchy is, particularly this monarchy, because it focuses on the life of Queen Elizabeth II Royale. And um, it's a very... <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Um, but... It's very interesting as to how they present those dynamics and those relationships all the way going back to Churchill. Um, and I was going to list all the other prime ministers, but all the rest of them that came after Churchill. <laughs> all the others. All the others, all the others. Um, and how those dynamics play out and how the actress is very good at presenting the Queen in some cases being quite subservient to the prime minister in other instances, actually standing her ground on certain issues and in some people's eyes, probably crossing the line. And it always fascinates mm. me, you know, from a very sort of, um, I suppose, purely speculative pers uh, perspective as to to what extent these sorts of scenarios and dynamics played out in that room within Buckingham Palace. Mm. How beautifully put, Brother Bear. Um, so w to, to your point there, to the, the tone of, of where you're going, um, I'm not sure where I was going, but it was a it was more of a statement than any point. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think it's interesting to hear your um your your views on this area because generally throughout my life I've I've been quite critical of of the concept of the monarchy even in the British scope. Um, but one one thing to your point which I I can't ignore, um, is that uh, monarchies have been known to reduce the levels of political divide in a country. Um, and, and I think that what we've seen in generally in countries with with monarchies, whether it's Norway, Britain, Netherlands, uh, Monaco, you can I can reel off a few more, um, is that monarchies can have a tendency of reducing the political arguing um, that takes place in the homeland. So what what I feel there, the, the value there is, you know, less assemblages of um, corruption um less assemblages of, of forceful takeover and coup de attacks. Um, you know, this is this is incredibly timely giving the the storming of of the capital um in, in the US recently. Um that's never to say that those things, you know, Britain's immune from those things. Um I've definitely seen a um a sort of drive towards centrism and I think that you can firmly say that most monarchies rule from a very centrist approach. Um, when they're at the, the helm of government, so mm -hmm. those are those are the two main benefits I would I would outline in terms of pushing the the, the monarchist agenda forward. Yeah, and I suppose a monarchy, I suppose a self conscious monarchy or a, con a monarchy that's sufficiently self conscious understands that it has to remain somewhat vanilla to survive. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. It's it's uh, a survival mechanism. Um, you know, uh, the centrist approach is, is the easiest way to bring together um, and and also to encourage efficacy in, in yourself as an institution from people. Um, that being said, though, um, the, the caveat of all that, Brother Bear, is extreme centrism. And I think that certain countries in... in certain times have, have followed a, a rhetoric of extreme centrism. Um, and I feel like... So, what does that look like? Like, how does that manifest? I think there's certain um, negatives that come with 
middle-of-the-road liberal democracy um, that take right. compromise to the nth degree um, to the point in which nobody benefits um, and actually a truly vanilla outcome is not beneficial for any class, any race, any you know any any immigrant community, any rich or poor person. Um, compromise can be taken to an extreme level, which doesn't do any yes. favors for anyone in society. Yes. Okay. So it's almost on the fence to the extent that no particular demographic sees a tangible benefit. I would argue you can get to a level of kind of extreme political agnosticism, and I think that that can lead to apathy um, mm -hmm. in in society. Social malaise um, actually can lead to a feeling of zero direction. Um, yes. And I would argue that that has for many years been a, been the case in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that people have have gotten so used to the centrist compromise, you know, whether it's a Nick Clegg or a David Cameron, um, yes. eventually that cycle was terminated by the Brexit effect. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, again, the, the extreme centrism can lead to general extremism and, and groups in society pulling in polar opposite directions, which is also not helpful. Yes. So let me make a, a couple of cases for the monarchy. The monarch. Um, in, <laughs> indeed, um, the monarch herself, um, Queen Elizabeth Regina um, II. So I, I think there is a non-trivial benefit to having someone who, like I said previously, to my previous point, having someone like the Queen Elizabeth II being around as long as she has and overseeing the country um, in the capacity of monarch for as long as she has. I think that brings a non-trivial perspective and um, almost insight to what the country is, the country's identity, and a feeling of stability. Mm -hmm. She is a bedrock on which, I suppose, our democracy is somewhat built around. Mm -hmm. um, and she plays a non-trivial role as a statesman and representative of the United Kingdom, and I think she does an extremely good job of doing that, in my humble opinion. Mm. And I think one of her greatest achievements, and she attests to this and says it's one of her greatest achievements as monarch, is the, I suppose, establishment and development of the Commonwealth legacy. Now, I don't think that necessarily needs to be interpreted as a colonial legacy, but it's rather as something potentially much more constructive and collaborative and mm. positive, ultimately. Mm. Mm. Um, so so the, the, I think, yeah, I, I shall park that point there for now. No, I think, I think that's, um, that's a good point. I think that the, the collaborative um, and cohe the cohesive ideas that come out of a monarchy as a head of state, uh, they, they, they're not trivial in any way. Um, the critique I would say to that point is that there's never a guarantee of competency um, coming from the leadership. Um, that being said, um, in the UK, um, I would I would say that we've we've been fairly lucky, at least with the head of state with the Queen, in terms of comp competency and, and presentation. Um, the cer the certain uh, aspects of the monarchy that left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, and I think. 
the thing that that would relate around Andre is is kind of the uh, the creation of a class based society. Um, now I'm not mm. pushing an advocate. I'm not. I'm not advocating necessarily socialism here, um, where where you know the the public owns everything. Um, what what I'm saying is I feel that part and parcel of classist ideas and that kind of class identity politics, which which is quite dangerous, is very wrapped up in monarchies, and that's that's a cultural phenomenon that we see in societies like the Netherlands, like the UK. Um, like certain certain nations in the Middle East um, that have monarchies, and I think that the class-based society is, in terms of its pigeonholing of people, um, and and its sort of uh, taking away of of human agency on the cultural level is quite dangerous. So I think that point would um, hold water if we were talking sort of monarchy pre-Victoria. Because it wielded and wielded much more power back then, and it did enforce, I suppose, a sort of a feudal class system. I'm not sure that exists to the same extent anymore. I think whether you you'd struggle to find a correlation with countries with monarchies or without monarchies. In fact, mm. as to whether there is a distinctive class system and an unhelpful one at that, um, mm. because I think there's always people at the top and the bottom of any given hierarchy someone has to be bottom someone has to be top and um, but yes i think in terms of distinct classes the uk's i don't know whether they exist or whether we've obsessed about it because you can look at almost any country and establish those class groupings uh, it depends it just depends on where you put the borders as to where one starts and one ends mm. and i don't know whether we've just maybe almost it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as in we talk about class i mean it exists right You've got the working class, but like, what is where does working class end and middle class start? And it's like, mm. I don't know if it's an unhelpful and pretty, um, I suppose, crude ruler against the messy reality that is reality. <laughs> you're, you're raising an interesting point there because you look at countries like the United States where there is no monarchy and you know, you could never, you could never confidently say that they don't have class divisions. Don't we know? just call them blue collar over there? Generally, people would refer to themselves as blue collar or, or redneck or redneck. And, and this is the whole, the whole thing in America. People by and large are not aware of the class based system. Um, that's not to say it doesn't exist, but they don't obsess about it. There is a, um, a drive constantly to to self development. Um, so is it is it something that we've just taken a point and upon ourselves to label, and it's actually a dynamic and a reality that's global. I think it's a dynamic that's global, but I think that in certain countries like the UK, we've obsessed about it to such an extent that we it's, have. We really have, man. Why is that? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I I. I really think there's a, there's so many complex reasons behind that. My point before was that even though a monarchy isn't necessarily more unequal than a non a non monarchy, I mean, you you could always make the argument that the Netherlands is a far more equal and you know you know it's a far more egalitarian country with with better social systems than the United States, um, but yet the Netherlands has a monarchy. Um, so in practice. Um, a monarchy isn't necessarily tantamount to inequality, but 
the British mentality is, is obsessed and continues to about class politics and judgment based on if you're rich and poor and it goes both ways mm -hmm. why do you think it is why I don't know I think partly yes it's self-fulfilling prophecy we almost like to categorize things in helpful things but um, I don't we've always had a working class middle class and upper class but I, I don't doubt that it has some grounding in reality I don't dismiss it mm. by that same token but I believe the most unequal society if you're looking at it not so maybe so much from a class perspective um, but from an income perspective, I believe is Norway, which is weird. Equal. equal, unequal, unequal. Really, really, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And that being the difference in income from the 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 richest brackets to the the poorest. Yeah, I believe so. Let me just Google that. Let me, Jamie, help Jamie, us. Jamie, come on, Jamie, come on in. <laughs> come on, us. Jamie, you're being slow. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite surprising. God damn it. it! Says UK ranks among the most unequal nations in Europe, but is the most equal is more equal than the US. Wow, which is the most divided, wealthy nation in the world? Mm. But again, the terms that we're talking about here can sometimes be muddled because there's certain countries like the US that are incredibly unequal, but there's huge amounts of mobility within the middle class in a way that it doesn't exist in Europe. Right, and it's an interesting thing, brother Ben, mm. because some of the early, the countries that have the latest countries that have come out of the Soviet bloc, the likes of Belarus and the Ukraine, mm. are coming up as top countries on economic equality. Mm. And, what and I wonder whether um, I believe this is income. So, and that doesn't completely surprise me because coming out of the Soviet bloc you almost hit the reset button and introduce capitalism. So mm. maybe that makes sense because those um, the skew you would see on a bell distribution hasn't come into full fruition yet because it's a relatively young capitalist society. Right, so they haven't got to that plateau. And also the... But this is... Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Eastern Bloc um, inherited or didn't inherit but was outsourced a lot of Western Europe's mining operations wasn't it mm -hmm. so yes that that would tell me that potentially their economies are diverse enough to lean back on primary sources of income yeah well it feels like society as a whole has been pruned back to a a base baseline and then that baseline hasn't been skewed much yet because they've only had 20 odd years or 30 odd years to do it to mm. skew it um, from with the introduction of proper true capitalism um, mm. and bend it to their advantage or personal advantage but I, I do believe there is, there is a theory that goes along the lines of you know if you were to redistribute all of the world all the world's riches mm. the richest people give them 30 years and they'll re-emerge as the richest people <laughs> because it's there, there is a competence hierarchy there's a competence hierarchy and it's also about the networks, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. The, that, that's a non-trivial uh, variable. Because if the networks of trade and trust between business partners um, are to be taken into account, I feel like eventually that money would slowly go back to sort of a similar shape that it, it would was. Go, it, would, it would exactly do that. It mm. would exactly do that through a combination of variables, which we probably don't have the 
time to fully discuss in this podcast because we're talking about the monarchy which is actually in itself an extremely fascinating topic and brother bear can i just throw one at you throw one throw one hard go for it yeah it's gonna pitch this ball pitch it pitch it um so um you look at red Sox or yankees go (laughs) it'd be uh i'm i'm a a blue jays fan i'm afraid it's gonna be it's gonna be uh toronto canada's mlb team pow sorry that wasn't the answer you wanted brother bear it's okay, brother. I'll, I gave a, a dwindling pal for that. It's okay. <laughs> a mild pal. A mild pal, which is um, disapproval. Anyway, <laughs> brother Bear, so I was thinking, um, what do you think to this argument? You know how we talk about, oh, look at these, you know, rich um, royals living in their palaces, Kensington Palace, Buckingham Palace, Sandringham, um, Balmoral. Mm. Um you know, this is taxpayers' money. How dare they? This is, you know, the often the source of great outrage. And I love these this tabloid culture. I think it's toxic, and I think we should get into that in a bit, off the back of the whole Megan thing as well. I think it's hilarious, and I hate them because they are awful. Um, yes. The tabloids, that is. Um, yes. Um, what I'm trying to get at, ultimately, is people talk about all of this net outflow and paying for the royal family to live the life they do. My point is the UK brings a unique attraction, and I think it's attraction among many, but I think it's a non-trivial one in the sense, I know I'm saying the word non-trivial, but I like it a lot, and I've been using it recently. So it's a great word. I think it's a great word, and it's 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 um, it has real meaning. Non-trivial meaning it is not of a trivial variable within the equation so i think it's an it's an important variable in the equation when you consider uk tourism i think the royal family is a huge attraction in that equation what mm. what say you i think it's incredibly hard to track directly the the impact the positive economic impact of tourism the mm. royal family brings because you can say We'll look at countries like France. France and the city of Paris um, attracts the highest amount of tourism than any other European country. Do they have a royal family? No. Um, you know, does London and the UK have enough attractions organically without that institution? I would argue yes. But um, nevertheless, I'm sure that the the royals bring in millions, um, if not billions into the country uh, through tourism. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to knock that. Look, at, Let's actually talk about some figures here, Brother Bear, because you brought the conversation onto a more financial slant, which, which I like. Um, so the, the British royal family um, actually takes more in taxpayer receipts than any other royal family in the world. Um, they're followed quite closely by uh, Monaco, um, and uh, that's Prince Albert the second, and then in third place you've got the Netherlands, um, and then that's lagged behind a bit, a bit by Norway. But the British government, um, from its people, takes forty-two point eight million in tax receipts. Um, mm-hmm. Now, as we're using the word trivial a lot, brother bear, um, looking into the financials per capita, that isn't actually a huge amount. In this is called the sovereign grant, that forty-two point eight million. Um, the 
the the uh, public paid 65 pence per person in 2016 to 17 so that's about the price of a first class stamp mm-hmm. um so that isn't actually a high price i'll give them that um but I don't know, brother Bill. I have to be quite honest with you. Something deep inside my core still says that that's one that that's too much. Sixty-five pence too much. <laughs> mm. um, well, I, I also I also should add. I also should add before you before you sh- shit on my explanation there. <laughs> and, I, and I will shit on them. Make, you should make no mistake. Rip it, rip it to shreds. Um, the the queen also received fourteen point nine million. Uh, that same financial year through sources uh, generated from property rental um, and other kind of pseudo-business resources. So my argument, and I'll I'll give the baton to you in a second, is that the Crown estate should be privatised. And I'm, I'm not necessarily arguing that we should completely abolish the monarchy, you know, tear the buildings down um, and remove them uh, from the public eye and and strip them of their titles and so on and so forth. My argument would only be to completely divorce them from taxpayer receipts, privatise them, um, allow them to maintain their titles. I believe Spain moved towards a more privatised model with the monarchy. Um, And it certainly cut down on the, the, the tabloid attention, which admittedly is toxic. Um, but that that would be the the ideal outcome from where I'm standing, brother bear. Okay. Now rip apart, shred it, shred it. <laughs> so a report in 2019 basically revealed that um, Queen Elizabeth II and her family cost the British people 67 million pounds during the previous year. So that was in 2019. So factor in two percent inflation from 2017, which is the next finger I'm figure I'm going to give you. Mm. So according to Visit Britain, tourism in the UK linked to royal residences such as Royal Palace and Windsor Castle adds up to 2.7 million visitors a year. Obviously, um, caveating a black swan event such as COVID. Let's think about normal times. Another statistic mm. from the consultancy of Brand Finance said that 2017 the monarchy contributed 1.8 billion that's with a a billion with a b to the uk economy so assume that 1.8 billion is 90 percent off so make 10 percent of 1.8 billion that's 180 million still three times as much as they cost the british public in the year 2019 two percent inflation Mm. on uh, accrual since 2017 it's about triple assuming that figures off by 90 percent which it probably isn't so I think parking that for a second, I think the monarchy is also a non-trivial advocate for the um, Britain as a stable um, and civil nation. Um, and I think that probably in part also helps with actual stability that we've experienced in the UK, particularly London, which is why London's become such a haven for financial institutions and it's, it's no coincidence that we have the largest financial district within Europe it's because of that century old stability that financial institutions have found a safe haven in London and why that isn't the case in places such as Berlin Paris other great cities of Europe it's why we hold that gauntlet within Europe 
and don't forget that the city of london brings in more than 10 percent of of um the country's gdp a square mile that mm. is incredible isn't it that that yeah. one portion of the capital a square mile mm. yeah. do, do you think that there's a tangible link though between the monarchy and the the financial returns made in the city I do, and it just harkens back to the point we were talking about earlier, which is the fact that we've experienced sort of unprecedented stability in the context of Europe and managed to hold out against a Nazi invasion, mm. in no small part due to Winston Churchill and our, you know, armed forces, and I suppose just to 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 a lesser extent the monarchy as well. Um, but I think fundamentally, it's a shared identity. It's um, a shared advocacy of the country and representation um, at the highest levels of government and international representation, which has, you know, been nothing short of exemplary, at least under Queen Elizabeth II. And I do go back to your point around monarchies inherited and therefore somewhat um, unpredictable. And which, so I, I fully agree with that point. I think. It's almost like the Roman emperors, you know, you could have a worst case scenario where you end up with a monarch somewhat like Caligula or Nero, mm. right? And that, that's, that's an absolutely <laughs> a possibility and it's a horrific one to think about. But you'd like to think that almost inherited values and ways of bringing up and understood best practice, some would weeded out the Henry VIII and hopefully brought more Elizabeths to the fore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... There's certainly those those benefits that come with, um, you know, the presence of a monarchy, and you could accuse a monarchy of being um, unadaptable. Um, but then the U.S. Constitution isn't exactly the most adaptive document. Um, yes. In so yes. you know, <laughs> just not having a monarchy doesn't um, protect so you from. No, absolutely. And, and and sorry, Leo, because I didn't really directly address your point. I went on about World War Two, but it was supposed as a, a point of instability in the 20th century. And what I'm trying to say is there were other points, maybe not as major, but there were such insta instable, unstable points in the history of the 20th century, where I think the monarchy played a non trivial role in maintaining stability in the sense that they buttress democracy, because they overarch the four year term of any given prime minister. And I think that is poorly understood in terms of how much stability that lends the country because it, sh it, it, it buttresses a natural um, and understood identity of the nation and who we are um, to probably a greater extent than we appreciate. Probably to a greater extent that's uh, obvious in front of us, mm -hmm. in front of our eyes. What, and I what think would... the overarching aspect is a, is a real thing, right? There's like prime ministers, presidents come and go, but there is sort of, an, and she, she, as in the Queen Elizabeth II, does represent something greater and potentially almost the values, the shared mm. values of a nation. Mm. Or at least I'd like to think in my rose-tinted glasses, but then I'm a royalist bastard, so what do I know? <laughs> I love that viewpoint, and I think I think that there's a, there's a beautiful uh, feeling that comes with that that shared identity and set of values. Um, my concern there is how much they change, and I think in terms of how how a, a country's values 
changed so rapidly. I mean, let's take the case of Germany in the 20th century. It went from a royalist um, Reich to a, uh, a liberal democracy to a, a fascist dictatorship in in the space of about 30 or 40 years, um, which which isn't desirable. Um, but if, if that is the case in a lot of countries, um, I, I would be concerned that a monarchy would be at odds with sort of the the relative changes um, that happens in populations. In particular, um, you know, some monarchies have fallen to, to extremism. Um, that of, you know, Franco Spain, I think there was a lot of collaboration between the monarchy and the fascists. Um, yeah. Which, which obviously allowed the, the, the fascists to consolidate their power. Um, it's it's a tough one, right? Because admittedly, there's a massive cultural um, cultural value um, in you know the values that come with the monarchy, but only if you agree with those values. Um, yeah, and so you know, I definitely agree that an absolute monarchy is not the way to go. I think the system we have now, where we have a, almost a hybrid monarchy, um, well, a hybrid. Exactly. Mm. Consti- what would you call it? Constitutional democracy, or what is it? Yeah. What the hell are we in? Con- cons- <laughs> constitutional parliamentary democracy. Um, Brit- Britain is is definitely a democracy um, in the in the liberal sense of the word, um, but you know the, there's there's still a monarchy involved in in the royal assent process. Yeah, and 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 I think the monarchy at this point is sufficiently sub- sufficiently subdued to I suppose stay in its lane and be there only in a very sort of subdued, quiet, advisory capacity, mm. as opposed to anything more vocal than that. And I mean, even a smidge over that. Mm. And Queen Elizabeth II has been very good at setting the precedent um, henceforth that will be, I suppose, adhered to by Charles, William, George, etc. If you, um, unless you Republicans abolish it, you bastards. But anyway, I think I think the 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 the, the monarchy is almost disempowered to the extent of where you don't need to worry about it in any real sense. Mm. And I suppose, fine, it is what it is, and it sit and it still exists. And therefore, I think you almost have you can have your cake and eat it because you have your monarchy and all the benefits it brings from a tourist and fascination perspective, and that is a serious there is serious fascinating i mean we are quite unique in that position to have maintained and sit and ma- managed to marry those two systems and allow them to coexist i mm. think that is an incredible achievement of diplomacy and restraint it's certainly rare isn't it it's amazing it's... i mean the restraint on both sides that had to have been displayed to to get us to where we are i think is admirable mm. It, it's it's certainly admirable that um, both sides were able to be appeased um, and and kept in their lanes, um, you know, without without doing too much damage to the other party. Well, look at the um, bloody French Revolution. Look what they did there. Right, that went down with a a a, a bang. Right, that went out with a bang. Well, look at Whereas, Oliver Cromwell. You know the um, right. the bloody removal of the monarchy. Um, yeah. You know Cromwell himself became one of the the worst tyrants. Um, ever to have uh, led the country, and you know he was yep. he was he came from the Republican and anti-monarchist stance. Yep. Um, I suppose, Brother Bear, what this boils down to, right, is that 
you can't make generalizations all monarchies are bad or all republican nations are free um yeah you know and i definitely agree with you that um you know the monarchy feels in terms of effects on our daily lives fairly insignificant in the uk yes I don't and and, 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 I, and i honestly believe as as much as we british sort of love a happy medium not too hot not too cold the goldilocks zone i think we've really over time and through non-trivial effort managed to find that sweet spot hmm. between a um, democracy and a monarchy coexisting I, I think that's actually if you sort of articulate it that way it's quite an amazing achievement hmm. and, and and i think you can honestly and i don't think this is my naivety speaking i think you can have the best of both worlds coexist and actually have a more productive society thanks to it mm. a society that both holds patriotism and the great values of democracy and free speech all in one you can definitely definitely the, i wouldn't say the two are mutually exclusive right i wouldn't no, say not. that a, a monarchy um excludes or, or necessarily even reduces the chances of of having free speech in a modern society no no and free elections kind of was and more to elections. my point but yeah yeah but free elections in a in more but it, i think it's um a miracle of diplomacy that we've managed to sort of maintain both and i'd like to think sort of refined and polished both to the point of where they can happily coexist and i, I think it's quite amazing actually i keep saying that but i th really thinking about it now it's quite amazing how these potentially mutually exclusive paradigms have managed to find a beautiful middle ground where they complement each other almost because the queen's got her roles as a representative of the country and you know just the things the gushing words of michelle obama when she came to visit buckingham palace inviting presidents we are a bastion and she is a show of force and power and diplomacy and good grace and british manners and i think I'd like to think, sort of my roast and suspects, that, you know, she represents the best of British and she does, she is a true, in the in the true sense of the word, an, a true advocate of this country and the best of what this country is about and has to offer. Mm. Wow, Brother Bear. I didn't know you were such a monarchist, such a royalist. Good God, That's... neither did I, especially after two pints. Yeah. And, a, and of course, um, a, a glass of Pims as well. Yeah, it's on the lawn, um, and a, um, a cucumber mm. finger sandwich. But um, yeah. but no, I, I I I do, I suppose articulating it now, and I I rarely do touch this topic, because I suppose it's one of those books you have in your the dusty mm. corner of your mind, right? But now, sort of articulating it, I do realise that I think we've we're almost an example to be mm. emulated in terms of managing the best of both a monarchy and what it could offer a country and the perspective and context um, it can offer to its prime ministers in a very much a light touch advisory mm. role and then having a free democracy a fully fledged beautiful democracy where protest is permissible mm. and encouraged Mm. Well, you see, these are these are excellent points, and I think 
I think it's a shame that um, not many young people are actually aware of these benefits that come with a monarchy. I think people are very quick to criticise the monarchy um, purely based on uh, just visual judgments of all the pomp and circumstance. Um, I th- well, it's also that like we wield, like we punch above our weight through the Queen. I honestly believe. You mean that. on the international stage? Like we do. We do on absolutely on the international stage because the Queen. There is only one. When you say the Queen, you don't think of any other country other than the United mm, that's Kingdom. That's right. And I'm not sure if that's colonialism or if that's just the the branding and marketing of the the British royals is just that bit greater than than any other royals in the in the world. Um, mm. Well, I think we're probably more associated with the royals than mm. any other country, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the value, both financial in terms of shared values, um, and in terms of international relations that comes with that, is is absolutely brilliant. I, th- I don't think that you could logically argue against that. Um, what What doesn't sit right with me, brother Bear, is the um, the worshiping of individuals based on uh, a birth title um and i think i think mm-hmm. p- uh, this is a personal thing in the way that i think america has rubbed off on me and even being in canada um there's a lot of anti-monarchist sentiment here um i think i think that the the idea of being born into a position and being being worshipped um is something that certainly doesn't sit right with me when People have such a aversion to people on welfare. Um, one of the things I've I found that was particularly difficult in British society was um, generally the groups that are, are most against people on benefits are um, pat- particularly um, pleased with the with the royal family, um, and I always found that quite hypocritical. Um, you know, the the monarch is in my eyes, the biggest benefit scrounger in the UK, um, the the largest um, taker of, of tax receipts um, for, for doing very little on the day-to-day. I, I do believe that the marketing of the royal family um, amplifies their role in society far more than the, than the reality. Um, so what say thee to the figures I quoted earlier? need to dissect the figures... Um, were you talking about tourism in general? When you said no, four times the amount was it four times? No, no, no. So, so, so in reality, it's um, good God, probably twenty times the amount the monarchy brings in versus what they take. How do we now? Track this that, is though, tourism how, in the UK. How is that? How are those? How are they directly linked to and? My my question, I suppose, would be if you if you took away the, um, the the legal requirement for citizens or subjects in this situation to to pay into the royal purse, would those returns go away? Because if the royal family were kind of in the Spanish sense self-sustaining and all the buildings were there um, and maintained, perhaps mm. like the national trust, but but for the most part privatized, do you think that? those revenues of the income would would actually disappear um i don't know and i and i i'm not sure i not to be rude i'm not sure i care i think ultimately you want the 
what what the bottom line is, right? Um, in terms of whether um, they're a net asset to the British taxpayer or mm. a liability, and they fall into the former on all accounts um, because <laughs> ultimately the sixty-two million is fully um, mm. disclosed in terms of that 2019 figure of how much they cost. That's just the entire British royal family um, that year, the British public. And then they bring in, it's 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 it's, it's understood that they bring in in the order of 1.8 billion. They, they, they're, they're, we're who, talking billions here. But who takes that income? income? That's the thing. Everyone is charged the income to pay for them, but not that doesn't trickle down to all members of society. All members of society pay into that. But they don't get that back. That's when you, if you look at per capita, I feel like that, that figure, mm. the one point eight billion, I'll, you know, albeit a figure that shouldn't be sniffed at. There's certainly, there's certainly an asset rearing side to the royal family. What I'm not convinced of is the distribution of that. Right. So I mean, e even if you take it on face value, imagine if it's or they've paid. I mean, I can't believe this would be the case, but just take it as an example that they they paid 1.8 billion for um, teas and cups and cookies, or with a queen's face on them in Buckingham Palace, Windsor, and Balmoral. Um, if all that money um, was spent there, that there's still people who came abroad and took it took time out of their day to visit those places. And will otherwise be staying in hotels, paying for meals, going to restaurants, paying for goods and services in and around the city of London or wherever they may be and traveling on further within the UK. So I think it's tourism in the holistic sense as well. But the, the, the goods and services consumed with the argument I would make to that is they would they would be by people who are actually working as opposed to to just people who are sitting idle. And who okay so you're specifically referring to people who are scrounging or well, living I'm, off I'm, the benefit system I'm accusing system. the royals of, of scrounging and living off the benefit system I think well, well I think if they're a net asset then they, they're not that but they're a net, net asset inadvertently it's it's not by their own choosing so so they're born into a they're born into a system where they have to do nothing and Oh, mm -hmm. well, no, okay. they, they don't do nothing. They do nothing on the on the relative sense to a forty-hour week or someone who works in a a coal mine or a chip shop. And I think that there's a certain. I think you'll be surprised how much the Queen does. But what does she do? I I would I want to be educated on how much she does. I understand that there's paperwork involved, but I feel like. It's never been made transparent to me how much she does, Brother Bear. Hmm. Yes, I suppose there's a lot of um, diplomacy to be done in the in the meantime. There's the stuff we know of, such as the weekly meeting with the Prime Minister, which only takes up probably a few minutes of one day in a week. So I'd like to understand the breakdown, but I understand it's a non-trivial amount of work, especially of someone of her age who would normally, in normal society, let's under be understood and well understood that, be retired at this age. And she's been of a retirement age for some time now. 
correct, but the luxuries that she lives off of your and my labor are so huge. I do feel that mm. they outweigh any kind of um, ill experience that she may have through working um, into her later years. Um, mm. I think it's a principal thing, though. So, so sorry. So, 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 so take it. Take it, maybe. Maybe let's yeah. assume she does nothing. Let's assume she does nothing. Um, so what? So what? Like, it still brings in a net billion to the country. How How could you argue, I mean, suppose, against... I mean, to just forgetting whether the monarchy is a mm. good or bad thing. Why would you remove something that brings a net billion to the country through goods and services purchased Because it's illegally... Bought? It's a forcefully and illegally stealing from the people. It doesn't matter what it brings in. And and the trickle down isn't felt by all the payers. So so it's like it's a casino mm-hmm. where the, the game is rigged, is what I'm what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. I, and this is this is why I believe it's a it's a, a matter of principle. Um, you know, we're we're talking about an institution that, in my eyes, robs from the people. You know, and it doesn't it doesn't bring back any even distribution wealth and resources to those people um the the other criticism i would have of the royal family as an institution as something that's culturally important is that i actually believe that the royal family encourages british citizens to be okay with some of the most insanely unequal um land laws in the world you know the leasehold system the lack of regulation on property owning individuals um, in terms of the maintenance and the charging i i think that there's a direct link because in the uk landowners are worshipped more than anything more than business owners more than more than workers Mm. i think that people who own businesses and start their own businesses and even the general worker could be treated a lot better but I think that the monarchy has has developed this kind of almost unhealthy and extreme um, public perception of what it means to be a landowner. Um, so I, I think without ownership of one sort or another, whether that's land or mm. whatever, um, you have no power, right? So, um, well, li- li- little to no power. So the likes of Thatcher mm. really encouraged private ownership for that very reason um because you have nothing to borrow against otherwise um so i'm not sure exactly where i'm going with this but well thatcher um, thatcher actually gave people home ownership arguably because it would bring them into debt and she wanted to destroy the unions so she she knew that she actually knew that once people are in debt, they won't go on strike. Whereas if people live in council houses and they rent at lower rates or can be bailed out, they, they will. Mm. Um, mm. So I think mm. that what Thatcher did was very clever in that it was, you know, it was it liberated people in terms of home ownership, but it also destroyed their ability and bargaining power in the workplace. So it took away a lot of freedom. But... Without going on the Thatcherite <laughs> tangent, because 
Thatcher was an incredibly divisive individual who, you know, divided, you know, for, for half of the country, she was hugely beneficial, um, either in home ownership sense or the, you know, the banking sense or for, and for the, you know, for the miners and the people of the north, it was the exact opposite story, um, you know. Yeah. But I think in my mind, Brother Bear, the monarchy is is very wrapped up with the the lack of um, regulation on the landowning classes in Britain. And I think I think that that's got a lot to do with you know people being okay with gov with with you know the the way that landlords treat tenants even to this day. And I think that's been a historic problem in the UK. So um, h- how would that manifest? What would it a landlord do to uh, mistreat a tenant well let's let's take a look at the situation in london mm-hmm. you know the rest of the world mo- the rest of the western world mm-hmm. would the the quality of housing for the price you pay is absolutely laughable in the in the southern uk you know the the shortage in housing um is is a huge issue. It's probably the biggest issue facing the UK right now, mm-hmm. other than obviously yeah. the the obvious elephant in the room of COVID. But yeah. To cut a long story short, um, for what you pay in the UK, particularly in the South, where all the jobs and prosperity are, um, mm-hmm. what you get back is is much lower than, say, a country like France or Germany or Canada, where there's there's rent controls. There are maintenance requirements for heating systems for um plumbing plumbing systems and and mold reduction and all these things um Mm -hmm. so we're kind of getting down into the weeds here but i do believe that there's an efficacy for a system that unequal that is also influenced by people's feelings of um well people's justification of a monarchy um i think the two go hand in hand Mm mm-hmm but isn't that something a little micro for something like a monarchy or are you saying that actually indirectly it does impact this area to a large extent i'd say i'd say culturally it has a a large impact on people being comfortable with with landlords having that kind of um control in their lives um i I think that the sphere of influence of the monarch is as as you said, it's it's much greater than than people acknowledge, um, mm. particularly on people's cultural lives, and I I do believe that encourages a system whereby land ownership is is worshipped as the kind of a, a deity uh, like state in the UK in a way that it isn't in continental Europe, um, it is in the United States, but their situation is so different with how you can acquire property that. It's almost not a fair comparison. But yeah. Well, I, I think for a start, in, in, Germ- in Germany, they seem to have adopted what the World Economic Forum in 2020 was referring to as you will own nothing and you will be happy, which sounds like the worst dystopia I've ever heard of in my life. Mm. And then on the American side, their houses are made of wood. Mm. So they're all basically, they're not even assets. They're depreciating liabilities. Mm because you have to move on very quickly because whether it's rot or it gets blown down by a bloody hurricane. Um, 
I think you're investing in more than that in the UK because it's bricks and mortar and actually it's a reason we've got Victorian houses <laughs> because they're still here. Um, sure, and on the, I, I on the material, sorry, on the material level, I agree with that. Yeah, but but don't you don't you think that the the getting on the housing ladder is harder in the UK than pretty much any other Western country? I'm not sure. I've done sort of enough in-depth research to see what relative income can get you in another country mm. and how long it would take you to move from a position of being a renter to a position of ownership. Um, if I'm really honest, mm. but you know, I, I was looking at properties and land in Denver, mm. and it's it's very expensive. And I was probably looking at a hotspot. Um, so the, the the problem is also like U.S. You know, looking at it from a perspective of a ruthless capitalist, you would say the best way I can make money in somewhere like Denver is buy a plot of land and build um, condos, maybe 10 of them, mm. multi-story, um, you know, pile them as high as the council will let me or whatever the local authority says. I can also have private land ownership as a foreigner. So it's not a problem and I'll, I'll build it out of lumber um, and it will be relatively cheap. Mm. And then I won't actually let go of it because it's a pristine asset. And if I can pay off the debt, then why not? And if I can pay off the debt with the rent I accrue, then that actually works out pretty well. And so I'm not sure what I'm getting at, but I'm sorry, I suppose there's there's loopholes and ways to make money and extort tenants in, in any given system, mm. if you're smart about it. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, extort, extorting or um, some would say exploiting tenants, um, mm. you know, is, is doable in any system. But um, you can do it both ways, right? You're, you're, you're powerful as a tenant. Like, you can, if you want to, you know, make a deal with a landlord, use your initiative and, you know, say, I'm going to turn your living room into a bedroom. Are you okay with that? Sure. Okay, I'll rent that out. So that's going to subsidize my rent. Are we all good? We all good. You're still getting your 1600 a month. We're all good. We're all square. Mm. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm also getting my rent substantially subsidized. So everyone wins. Mm. Um, the only problem the downside is you don't have a living room well that's a pretty small downside if you're talking about you know reducing your rent by 50 60 70 percent so I I think that that there's also an ownership and sort of um, moving away from just being a victim as a tenant and understanding that you know personal ownership and ownership of your own destiny sort of I know this is kind of getting into deep philosophical stuff but Mm. for god's sake you've got a a lot more bloody agency than you think you do I think people do have a lot more agency than they consider, particularly in whether it's in business. Well, even or, then, they'd like to consider because it's scary. Because when you realise that you've got, there's more in your within your remit of power and domain of power mm. and domain of change, then actually it makes you points the finger straight back at your face. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I I would, however, caveat that with there's certain markets, London and New York, where um, tenants have a I would say a very minimal level of power and influence. I think I think there are those those hacks, right, where you can approach your landlord, um, and and try and uh, you know try and approach it in a capitalist way to to make some income off it yourself, and mm. you know that's you know more power to you if if you're doing that. Um, but generally, more broadly speaking, 
um, feel like the vulnerabilities lie with the tenant, and that's that's mainly down to supply and demand. Yeah, agreed. In, in the- and I, I wonder whether COVID is going to change that, Leo, because like people are, you know, the relative attractions and upsides of a city are starting to dwindle in light of COVID. And I'm, I'm sure that the tide will change when once COVID subsides. But people are looking to this, uh, the countryside, right? Mm. Um, and looking at, you know, what their money can buy and tends to be a lot more mm. than what they what they can afford in the city as an equivalent. Yeah. As a people, yeah. yeah. No, it's it, an interesting dynamic. It's it's a changing dynamic, right, isn't it? It's, I suppose, yeah. COVID, COVID highlighted some um, vulnerabilities and... Um, push factors from from the cities the question is you know if covid is very temporary how long will that drive to the the country work how, how long how mm. long will it will it last exactly but but to kind of to kind of bring it back to the um the original um the monarch here the monarch and i can see that we're we're far from in agreement on this um the i suppose the point i was just trying to make brother bear was just um that of uh, the cultural impacts of a monarchy. Um, mm. I, I, th- I think that the monarch um, has a has a major impact on British society. Um, and, and admittedly, I'd be a clown for saying uh, many of those weren't positive. Whether it's in the um, the kind of national unity sense, or the um, in the civic pride, or even the financial receipts from tourism, which which are certainly significant. Um, I was more highlighting the downside. I feel like there is a, a certain a negative consequence um, in in the way that uh, landlords are deified in, in the UK to almost an unhealthy extent. Um, yes. Which is often comes at the expense of business owners. Because you've got to remember that business people who come up with amazing innovations and hire productive people um, are also paying um, often absorbent rates um, just because somebody owns property. Um, there's a lot of dynamics behind why someone owns property. Did they work hard to get it or did they inherit it? And in many cases, they inherited it. And what this all comes back to, Brother Bear, is the problem of inheritance. And the royal family is ultimately an institution of, inher- of inheritance. And that's the point I was making in a nutshell. Yes, and I think it's a worthy point and a point worth making. Um, I think the inheritance of the royal family is, I suppose, the nature of the monarchy, right? It has to be that way. Mm. Um, what you, you, I'm happy about is that the monarchy doesn't have a, any real say in policy because mm. that would be bad. It would be bad only because, and for one reason and one reason only, and I wouldn't have to go any further down the list because this reason would be sufficient as to say as to why it would be a bad idea, is that you could end up, like I said, with a Nero Caligula further down the lineage, uh, which, you know, would be undesirable for the population as a whole because they would probably pass draconian laws on one side or another. And I'm glad that monarchy doesn't have a hand in that. In a sense, I suppose the monarchy is now doing what the monarchy should do, and monarchies, modern monarchies at least, should do in the sense of diplomacy and representation. Mm. Um, so that's great. Mm, and then definitely. on the other side is um, the inheritance of property. So yes, that has to happen for the monarchy. I, I, I think it's justified by the fact that they bring in their net positive, their net plus. 
in terms of the tourism and goods and services bought off the back of that tourism. Um, and then if we're talking about private ownership, I think there's something called inheritance tax that takes care of that and it's a healthy 40%. Mm. But do, uh, the, the monarchy are a, an untaxed uh, institution. Right, and, uh, and I think that's okay because they're an exception to the rule because they are a net asset, uh, in, in my humble opinion. Mm. And, you know, I, I really would want to look into these figures a bit deeper off the back of this conversation to make sure, you know, I'm right, that they are a net asset in, you know, hard numbers. Mm. And whether they're, if they're not, they're not, and I'd, we probably need to would need to make a follow up on this in the, our next disclaimer <laughs> up, at the upfront before we we delve into our next topic. But it would be interesting to find out. Yeah, you know, you could draw up an Excel and sort of you know look at the numbers um, off a trustworthy source. We'd need to do that properly. Mm. Um, and then the other bit is yeah, private ownership. I, I think inheritance tax is disgusting. I think it's abhorrent that it even exists given the fact that the income made to even accrue the assets in terms of property have been um, taxed already in terms of income. Mm. And that person's worked hard to pay off that mortgage and then to tax it twice on tax. Uh, I mean, it's it doesn't sort of fit in my head, but <laughs> death tax, as they call it. Yeah. Brother, but it's, in, it's, it's crazy. interesting. It's very interesting you bring up inheritance tax because... That's such. Mm. I mean, this totally relates to the the monarchy as a concept as well. But this this is a um, a really divisive issue in the U.S. Actually, there's a there's a large movement of ultra far conservatives that believe mm. in doing away with virtually all tax, but putting inheritance tax at a hundred percent. Tell me what you think of that. Bloody hell. Why would you put inheritance tax at 100%? Well, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question um, because it's it's such a strange take on it. So the, the argument is that your purchasing decisions throughout your life um, should be completely free from government um, seizure, um, mm -hmm. as should your income, because that is 100% your labor taxes theft in that realm. However, oh, I see. Yes, but your so no income tax, no sales tax, and so on. Um, however, your offspring are not deserving of your labor because it's your labor, not theirs. Well, it's completely fellow. Well, because in her, let's be honest, in any um, given person's life, inheritance tax is few and far between, as in it's not regular, therefore not predictable, therefore calm pay a government on a predictable basis mm, mm. so it has to be from the income let's be let's put some like taint this with, with reality, reality right with practical um rational and 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 also sporadic right inheritance tax we don't know when who's going to die when right very a very very sporadic and also it, that kind of system could would be entirely difficult to to implement because the amount of what to predict and implement well the gifting right so before when for example someone knows that their time is is drawing close the you know the amount yes. of gifting to to other sources would would skyrocket and and that would be that's incredibly hard to regulate um so that's in some ways it's almost an impossible system to even implement mm. yeah i mean i'd be more of this sort of lowering tax rates doing almost a Singapore or Hong Kong model where you you tax at a 10 or 15% rate uh, it means that much more disposable income 
uh, for people to buy goods and services within that economy and just, you know, drive it up. Um, and then, yeah, and I think inheritance tax, I don't quite understand it because it's surely on income you've post tax, therefore you used to pay off that mortgage and, you know, over a lifetime and then it gets another tax whacked on top of it. It's very strange and I, I don't quite understand how it exists. I suppose it's just another way or ploy of the government to take more of your sterling or dollar. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a p- p- big kick in the nuts, isn't it? Because you've been paying it's horrible. You've, you've been paying so much right through your entire life, um, yeah, and then to to be taxed after your debt is uh, <laughs> you know there's some members of my family would actually prefer to just burn all their money than actually <laughs> give it to the it's crazy government after yeah i think i think it's it's a super divisive issue i mean tax in general this this conversation um a lot of it's come i mean i mean how do you tax like it's that that income's been taxed why are you taxing it again like it's someone saving say someone over their lifetime say 200k and they've got it they're an account what why 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 does it to transfer it to your account why? Why do you need to tax mm. it? Yeah, I think I think it's it's the tax. It's been taxed tax on the transfer, right? Than the the actual. It's crazy. I, th- I don't know. It's I, th- crazy. I think people justify it through, um, you know, the the <laughs> the recipient is not as deserving as the saver. Um, yeah. So wow. therefore, dis- redistribute. <laughs> Ah, Bitcoin will solve all of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love I love the Bitcoin topic, and I I can't wait for you to educate me on that, brother Bear, very soon. But before we finish up this conversation, let's yes. talk about in in the final five ten minutes. Let's talk about the future of the Royals, giving the uh, the light behind this. Do Do you think that? Um, Meghan Markle's, uh, you know, the words that she said. Do you think they were? Do you think she was justified in making that public? And do you, what do you think the implications might be for the uh, the royal estate? Um, I understand the whole dynamic. What I try, I think I understand somewhat what she means by the British tabloids, because the British tabloids have no um, have no allegiance, and so they will. M- skew and misconstrue anything and everything just to get a story and just to sell papers and I, th- I think they are quite disgusting but as long as you understand they're disgusting that's fine um, I think when you take them a bit too seriously and take it to heart that's when it becomes a problem and obviously Harry and Meghan did Harry's got the post PTSD I'm sure from Diana which is has to be factored into all of this you mm. know and how the tabloids supposedly contributed to that they are awful if you read them if you don't and try and sort of be stoic about it as hard as that is you might be able to survive it any in any case um it's interesting and paradoxical that you know all of this media attention in the uk particularly from the tabloids apparently and then they go to one of the singular biggest chat show hosts in the world Mm. like do you want publicity or not you do Mm. but you don't and it's it's a bit strange so i'm not sure where they're coming from maybe they want to monetize themselves because they realize they've sort of been cut off from the um i suppose the breast of the royal family Mm. and so they're not getting the good 
um, milk of the royal family and therefore they're going to have to market themselves in one way or another and potentially the Oprah interview w- was the start of that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's certainly a bit of dissonance, right? Because on on one hand, they, they're saying that they want a complete divorce from that public scrutiny. Um, yeah. And then in the next stroke there, seem to be pursuing kind of sensationalist news. Um, yeah. And it, it's almost it's confusing, isn't it? Like, what do you want? Do you want to be in the public eye? Um, some people assume, some people think that um, the allegations were true, but despite that, the two of them are kind of uh, extreme narcissists. Um, I think that's probably there's probably some truth in that, particularly from Megan's side. But I feel like maybe they um, they they kind of again want the cake and eat it mm. they, they want all of the positive affirmations that media and attention can bring you mm. with none of the drawbacks which is um i suppose an unrealistic expectation right absolutely yeah no very well put they they want the best of both but you you just can't right you can't have mm. all the glory and the glitter and and none of the um the nasty bits that the the tabloids the tabloids uh bring yeah. into that equation um, but but nevertheless, I think I think that um, and you know actually I'm gonna gonna go more towards your angle here, Andre. It did kind of give me a pang of disappointment in the way that uh, certain uh, <laughs> scandals have played out over the past couple of years. Um, mm. Just because you know the royal family is supposed to be this kind of unifying force of um, I suppose UK identity. Um, mm and um you know civic civic pride and mm-hmm. it it's a shame when you see the um the kind of uh, frailties of these these people whether it's the the scandal with prince andrew whether it's the um the situation with with harry and meghan um you know that has yeah. some major political implications and i think it's a shame in general i agree however all i'd say is that yes you see these cracks and then you realise, actually, they're all human. Mm. Mm. And, you know, they're only human. And as much as they're sort of elevated to the level of royal, the, they're incredibly, they've done incredibly well to maintain a, as pristine of an image as they have. And, you know, there, 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 there is the scattering and smattering of these scandals, namely Prince Andrew, the whole allegations there, and that's, there's no clear conclusion there. The Meghan Markle thing... But I think the Queen's done a decent job at trying to mitigate these to the best of her ability. And I think it's a thankless job in a way because, in a way, she's a servant leader, right? She had no choice in the matter. Mm, mm. So I'm not sure it's an enviable position if that even was a consideration going into this conversation. Absolutely. It's uh, it's probably not an enviable enviable position to be in at all um so uh, to turn the conversation on its head here um you know is it a privilege or is it actually the very opposite of that being born into uh into a royal title if the crown's anything to go by and i know it's sort of based on rumor and 
you know, whispers here and there. The the Queen has a profound sense of duty, and but it's not a duty that she takes on uh, naturally, mm. and it's not something she embraced wholeheartedly, at least to start with. But I suppose she realised that the weight of the country was on her shoulders and the weight of the monarchy and the, the continuation of the monarchy was on her shoulders. And it put yourselves in someone like, you know, little George's shoes. He probably barely understands what the monarchy is. Mm. And yet, if it does continue as long as he will be alive, then he will inevitably become king. And that's quite, when you put it that way, Mm. you look at him as a child, that's quite a terrifying burden. Mm. And I'm not, if someone will give give me the choice whether I'd be who I am now or king, I'd rather be me. Mm. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, no, likewise, likewise. Final comment, closing comment. Do you think we'll have a monarchy in 50 years' time and what might that look like? Great question. I think we will. I think we will have a monarchy. I think it will be, if anything, even a one more step back from government. Potentially those weekly meetings with the Prime Minister will no longer be a feature. And again the royal family will be more of a marketing tool i can imagine prince george on tiktok and uh, instagram (laughs) (laughs) or whatever exists then whatever social media platform whatever exists then exactly whatever social media i'm sure tiktok will be um, a bygone era but no i i think you know whatever social media and vr technology and virtual reality will play a part a daily part in our lives in the future i think prince george will look to engage with that because by definition, he is a digital native and understands the importance of, I suppose, maintaining some form of tradition because I think tradition is going nowhere and I think we will be misty-eyed for a very long time and understands maybe the importance of the monarchy as a stabilising force. Brilliant. What a refreshing answer. Um, I think um, on that note, we can wrap up this conversation. Um Thank you very much for your time. Today. Really enjoyed that, brother. Bear. Absolutely, that was great. I loved it. And thank you to all the loyal subjects for for tuning in today, um, and and listening to this discussion and debate on the monarchy. Goodbye. Bloody marvelous. Have a good one, guys. Take care. Bye. Pow.